London and see the sights. The women are Mrs. Carter, her daughter, and her widowed sister-in-law. Now, in other parts of Europe, women didn't just go walking all over the streets by themselves, unaccompanied by gentlemen. But London was kind of different in this way. London women were famous for what was called gadding. <laughs> there was a proverb that England is the hell of horses, the purgatory of servants, and the paradise of women. <laughs> the, the Carters are staying at the Staple Inn in Holborn. It's still there. It was refurbished in the 1930s. Well, in these days, before the Holborn tube station, they have to walk into London. The city is ringed by a 30-foot-high wall erected by Roman legions 12 centuries earlier. But it was always more of a marketplace than a fortress, and it welcomes visitors through seven gates. One, <laughs> two, three, four, five, six, seven. The Carters walk straight across London. It's only about a mile. The whole of London in this period covered about one square mile, and it was a few acres smaller than Penn State's main campus on which we sit. Within this one square mile were over a hundred churches, 44 sumptuous guild halls. Here are three of them. These are the headquarters of merchants and craftsmen's organizations. Five great markets, palatial aristocratic residences, warehouses, hospitals, prisons, miles of retail shopping, and 140,000 people. Passing through one of the gates called Nougat, the Carters visit St. Paul's Cathedral. Called Paul's by Puritans, who scorn the term saint as sounding too Catholic, the cathedral is 585 feet long, about the width of Beaver Stadium. And it once boasted a wooden spire 450 feet high until lightning destroyed it. Crowding the church grounds are commercial booksellers' shops. Inside is a startling scene. It isn't even Sunday, but the church is jammed with people. They're mostly there to see and be seen. There are young gallants and beautiful women trying to show off all of their finery. There are merchants clinching deals. There are pickpockets. The central supports of that cathedral in 1599 would have been completely covered with playbills, uh, ads for new books, um, personal ads. <laughs> They're simply plastered with bills, like a modern bulletin board. Emerging to sunshine, the women head straight for that retail mecca, Cheapside, which is a broad street lined with shops. These were heady times for consumers. Little London had recently grown into a huge trading city. <coughs> a northern people, 
accustomed to buying local cabbages, when cabbages were in season, on market day, could now buy Mediterranean oranges. Women who had spun their own yarn for generations could now visit Thomas Dean's haberdashery and buy thread from Pisa, <coughs> silk thread from Bruges, ribbons from Spain, fringes from Genoa. England used to be a land of markets and peddlers, and now it boasted shops. Um, some of them were still sort of open-air shops, like those that you see. Cheapside was quite mixed. <coughs> Sometimes they had post and awning stalls that were set up in the middle of the street uh, every day, sort of like a farmer's market. Even the permanent shops often set their goods out on boards, and they would have a big shutter that came down at the end of the trading day to close up the shop. <coughs> There's a play called Arden of Feversham, in which a murder is accidentally prevented, when at the end of the day an apprentice lowers down the shutter and brains the thug who is hiding there waiting for his victim. John Stowe, who wrote a survey of London in 1598, writes of an area which once had shops with solars over them, like sunshades. As late one of them remained, wherein a woman sold seeds, roots, and herbs. But those sheds or shops are now largely built upward, some three, four, or five stories high. As well as tall shops, the carters passed tall houses. Squeezing 140,000 people into one square mile means going vertical. At a Y in the street, the carters arrive at the Royal Itch. So you can follow their route there. The open courtyard of the Royal Exchange is a money market for high-flying international traders. It's sort of an early stock exchange. But the Carters climb straight up to the second level, which is England's first shopping mall. Here they arrive at Dean's haberdashery and salivate at lace, silk, velvet, and carpets brought from Bruges or Naples or Morocco in the various shops. Across the street from the Royal Exchange is a large church belonging to Huguenot refugees, and a few blocks away is an Augustinian monastery whose church has been granted to the Dutch Protestant refugees. And here we are back to the persecutions that Charlotte was talking about. Like modern American megachurches, the Dutch church had 1,600 members in 1563, and the French church had as many as 2,000 in 1593. That building, in fact, stood until the early 1940s when it was bombed during World War II. The immigrants, often very skilled craftsmen, were very much resented. They took English jobs, created demand for housing that forced up rents, and were a drag on social services. Do these attitudes sound familiar? Many immigrants, and this again is very much like Amsterdam, lived outside the city walls. But when they attended the megachurches in the city center, they became irksomely visible. The Carters pass many churches, and they see many beggars huddled on church steps. Times are hard. 
While some Londoners purchase silk thread from Bruges, others starve in the streets. The 1590s were among the worst famine years of the century. London Alderman reported in 1596, a year of harvest failure, that three years of food shortages, following three years of bubonic plague, had impoverished the whole city. Thousands of people from country villages, victims of agricultural crises and textile depressions, flocked into London seeking jobs, living in crowded tenements or on the streets. We have a, a parish burial record from these years, recording the deaths of uh, many people, but I've picked out the deaths of vagrants between 1593 and 1598. And these are the words of the, uh, the local sexton, probably, who recorded the deaths. Edward Alice, a vagrant who died in the street. A young man not known who died in a hayloft. A cripple that died in the street before John Austin's door. A poor woman being vagrant whose name was not known. She died in the street under the seat before Christian Shipman's house called the Crown in the high street. A maid, vagrant, unknown, who died in the street near the postern. Margaret, a deaf woman, who died in the street. A young man, vagrant, having no abiding place, who died in the street before the door of Joseph Hayes, dwelling at the sign of Robin Hood in the high street. He was about 18 years old. I could not learn his name. Soon after leaving the Royal Exchange, the Carters turn south toward London Bridge. They watch a procession of actors blowing trumpets and beating drums to advertise, advertise the day's play. In this pre-newspaper era, many printed bills adore houses and, adorn houses and posts. London abounds in posts. Hitching posts, door posts, posts to separate horse paths from pedestrian paths, whipping posts, signposts for taverns, pissing posts. Purpose self-explanatory. <laughs> Plastered on the posts are bills offering legal aid, health care, instruction in foreign languages, stenography and counting, or advertising fencing contests, rope dancing exhibitions, bear baiting, new books, and upcoming plays. As the Carters walk, they hear through an open window snatches of poetry in a loud voice. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They don't know it, but what they're hearing is an actor practicing his lines for the afternoon performance. No, not exactly practicing his lines. He is learning his lines. The play starts in two hours, and he is still cramming. Actors had to live this way, because the typical London theater had a new play every single day. The longest run on record from the whole century was only nine days. Actors were always memorizing. They had the briefest of rehearsals, and they never had a complete script. Paper was expensive, and copying things out with a quill pen is very time-consuming. So all each actor had was one little scroll with his own part on it and cue words. So he, he never even knew what the play was about until their quick rehearsal. And he didn't have the luxury of thinking, in 10 minutes, my big speech comes up. 
He heard the cue words, and he was on, just like that. Imagine our actor madly memorizing all the world's a stage, all the men and women, merely players. They have their exits, their entrances. Each man in his time plays many parts, his act being seven ages. At first, the infant, mewling and puking in his nurse's arms. Mewling and puking? Who writes this stuff? <laughs> of course, the actors knew who wrote this stuff because Shakespeare himself was an actor. He was a member of the company. But the audience often didn't know or care who wrote the plays. They came to see the famous actors. When they reach the river, the Carters have a choice. They can cross the Thames by boat, a river taxi. A waterman preparing to cross in the direction of the theaters would hail them with the words, Westward Ho. You always thought that had to do with covered wagons. <laughs> or they could walk across London Bridge. London Bridge was already a very old bridge at this time. Construction was started on it in the 12th century. And it never did fall down. It was finally torn down in 1830. The bridge had 19 stone piers that were so close together that tidal water rushed dangerously fast between them. And every year, some daredevil would be killed shooting the bridge in a small boat. The bridge, as you see, was covered with houses. And as the carters stroll across, they see the heads of a few traitors stuck up on poles, an old custom. They have a view from the bridge of the waterfront wharves and warehouses in one direction and of the Tower of London in the other. At the south end of the bridge, Southwark, they come to a neighborhood of poor but hard-working immigrants bent on getting into business. The local school of St. Olaf's Parish is one of the few in the city that offers accounting as part of its curriculum. As the Carters turn towards the theater district, however, they do pass through a red light district. The brothels are on land owned by the bishops of Winchester. And the ladies of the evening are affectionately named Winchester Geese. The Carters could choose the Rose Theater or they could attend the Bear Baiting, but they head right for the new theater, built that very year, the Globe. The playbills posted fresh daily have already informed them that the play is as you like it, a comedy. The new theater looks splendid with its whitewashed walls and its freshly thatched roof. Finely dressed theater goers are already climbing up to the second level where they can sit under the roof and the apprentices and the small-time tradesmen are paying a penny to stand with the groundlings under the sky. The theater depends on daylight. They can have no evening performances. The Carters press in, hearing all around them that excited buzz of an audience waiting for a play. A trumpet calls them to attention, and the play begins. As I remember, Adam, it was upon this fashion bequeathed me by will, but of Four thousand crowns. But that's all gone now. In 1613, a mere 14 years after it was built, the actors shot off a cannon at the Globe during a performance of Shakespeare's last play, Henry VIII. They caught the thatch on fire and burned the Globe to the ground. 
Shakespeare had recently retired to Stratford. It was the end of an era. Half a century later, almost the whole of London would be destroyed in the Great Fire. Nearly everything the Carters saw today, from St. Paul's Cathedral to the shops of Cheapside, to the Royal Exchange, to the Great Globe itself, was destined to be destroyed by fire. But the plays remain. The legacy of London 1599 is with us every time we read or perform a play of Shakespeare or Johnson or Marlowe. And echoes of that great doomed theater and its harried resourceful actors haunt our memories. Listen, if you open the ears of your imagination, you can almost hear them now. <laughs> 